The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Sunday Edition with Anthony Corona. Every week here on ACB Media One, that's American Council of the Blind, Media One, and soon after on all your major podcast catchers. Each week, we'll dive into the news, human interest, and discussions about the issues surrounding all of us in and out of the American Council of the Blind community. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday edition with Anthony Corona on this very cold Martin Luther King weekend. Um, Many of you are buried under snow or fighting the cold, and I am there with you in solidarity. Being a longtime New York resident, I know what it is like, um, and we are definitely feeling it with you out there um i am so very lucky to do this show and to have the crew that comes every week um handling our hands today is sheila young hey sheila how's your week been so far busy i would imagine yeah pretty busy but it's good (laughs) busy stuff coming up too we got lots going on in the state of florida handling our clubhouse for us is bell hey bell hey anthony good to be here and you'll let us know if we have some participation from Clubhouse. You guys out there in Club Clubland are more than welcome to participate. Today's a, a very interactive show, or at least the second half of it will be. And of course, executive producer extraordinaire Bryn. Bryn, how's it going? It's going pretty good, except for the fact that it's like minus three right now. But other than that, it's it's fine here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Oh, I gotta love the dedication. Bryn's computer setup is in the basement. I'm sure it's a heck of a lot colder <laughs> down there than it is in the heart of the house. <laughs> it is. Um, I want to make a couple announcements before we get to the meat of the show. Um, the, uh, excuse me, the night at the opera call that we are doing with Bill Reader and Jolyn Bailey Page and Gabriel Lopez Cafati uh, will be the last Wednesday this month. And we will be doing opera highlights and talking a little bit about the different stages of opera moving into modern rock opera and things. Also that week, we have a Behind the Music with myself and Tim. (laughs) That's on Thursday nights. So bring your favorite karaoke tracks or spoken word pieces and tell us the story behind, you know, why you chose that for karaoke or or why you wrote or produced whatever pieces you'd like to share with the community. Um, But this week, we are still hosting until February 3rd. The Pride Connection Love is Love is Love is Love fundraiser with Fruit Loots. Think about the pirate, L-O-O-T-S. I thought it was the cereal at the, in the very beginning. And you can catch the podcast with um, founder David Cruz on the ACP podcast feed. Um, but coming up this week on Pride Connection is a conversation that I am really proud of. Um, I'm going to actually ask Bryn to say a few words about it, Bryn. 
Yeah. Um, well, also, first of all, the Fruit Loots fundraiser, if you just search for uh, BPI or Blind Pride uh, and then Fruit Loots on Google, you'll find the link. Um, and if you go to our podcast show notes, you'll find the link there as well. So we hope that you will participate in our fundraiser. Um, secondly, the next episode of Pride Connection, which will be out this Tuesday, is going to be about me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited about it. Um, I'm just talking about um, my, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm talking about my uh, transition. I recently changed my name and uh, it is now legally effective and I'm able to go in and uh, get new pieces of legal documentation with my new name on it. Um, so we talk a bit about the name change process and how much that cost and what that was like. Um, and then just, you know, um, what it's like to go through the process of transing your gender and, um, you know, the, the process that that entails and some of the psychological things that I went through and stuff like that. So um, if you're trans, uh, if you're an ally, um, if you're a parent of a kid who's trans, um, if you're just curious about what the situation is like, um, we hope that you will tune in and give it a listen. It'll come out this Tuesday on ACB Media One at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, and it will also be available after 10 p.m. Eastern on all of your favorite podcast apps, such as Spotify or Audible. And um, thank you for choosing me to to be the interviewer for that. Um, it is a an honest, a raw, an informative celebration con conversation. Yeah. I'm really very proud of, you of and this Leah, episode. You and and President Leah did a really great job on that one. Um, and and both of you asked some pretty hard questions. And I, I felt like we had a, a really good uh, and productive episode. Absolutely. So check that out, everyone. And now to the meat and bones <laughs> of today's show. It's um it's pretty rare when you have the opportunity to meet someone that you admire. Um, and in this virtual world, though, it's getting easier to do so. And it's even more rare when you meet a person like that, that there's such a symbiosis, such a, you know, a connection, an initial spark that that blossoms into something. And, you know, I had the opportunity to speak with Barbara a few times up to this point, Barbara Hensky, the author of the Guiding Emily series. And um, I had seen um, previews for the movie on Hallmark and was all excited with a little bit of trepidation saying, oh God, oh God, please let them get it right in my head. And for the most part, I think they really, really got it right. Um, but we'll talk with Barbara about her feelings about the movie versus the books. There are four books currently available in this series with a fifth one coming out early this spring, I believe. But Barbara will tell us more about that. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday edition, Barbara Hinsky. I am so, so happy to have you here. Anthony, thank you so much for that very warm introduction. And uh, I felt the affinity um, the first minute we talked so we've we just uh clicked instantly and and i like you that's a little bit rare so what a, what a gift um i'm so thrilled to be here i can't wait to learn a lot in the second half from all of you and i just love talking about guiding emily and the movie and everything associated with it so uh you'll have to shut me up on that topic but i'm thank you for being here i'm honored 
Absolutely. What I what I'd like to start with is if you could tell us a little about yourself, where you're from, um, and what got you into writing in the first place. Um, you are also a lawyer, I believe, if I'm correct with my research. Yes, I am. I'm. I've given up the practice of law now. I I write. I'm a full time novelist now, but. Um, I guess I started my professional life as an industrial engineer, um, went to law school five years into that gig, decided I look, I got a divorce from my first husband and looked at my lawyer, his lawyer, and the judge and said, well, I can do that. So I <laughs> went to law school. I know isn't that a snotty thing to say, but it was true. So I went to law school and then practiced um, business law. Commercial. I was a corporate lawyer for almost 40 years. But I always loved reading, loved novels. My father wrote books when he retired. I have 17 of his manuscripts. He wrote whodunits, and he was quite good, but never even attempted to get anything published. That was back before self-publishing. So I thought, well, when I retire, I will edit dad's books because they needed a little modernization and then publish them under his name. And then... Things changed in 2020, in 2010, I was seriously injured in a car accident, broke my neck, um, oh. had lots of upper body Im uh, injuries, but no low, lower body. And frankly, I was in, had double vision for months and months. I mean, actually years didn't really subside until 2021 when I had strabismus surgery that was mostly successful. Um, so I had a lot of those kinds of things going on, but my lower body was fine. Double vision after the accident, you know, I'm in a neck brace. I not supposed to be on the computer. I can't watch TV, double vision. That drove me crazy. Couldn't read, but I could walk. I live in Phoenix, Arizona. So the weather was good at that time. It was right after Thanksgiving. And I walked and walked and walked. And I thought, okay, well, if I wrote my own book, what would I write? And I remember thinking about my dad and hearing his voice telling me, Barb, write your own book. So my Rosemont, I came up with a five book Rosemont series, which is now nine books, um, and started writing. At that point, by the time I was finished with that book and ready to look for an agent or publish it, I was 58 years old. And I said, I'm, you know, I might not live long enough to query agents and then submit to publishers. I'm just going to self-publish this and see what happens, which I did. Um, December 2012 is when that book came out. And you know what? It did pretty well. So I thought, okay, well, I'll write a second book then. I'll get that second book out. And so it went. And I didn't, I was still practicing law in a job that I liked. And I so I was comfortable and leaving the practice of law was hard for me. I worked with a, a coach, a couple of life coaches on letting go of that to embrace the new. And I'm so glad I never looked back on that. I retired in 20 from the practice in 2019, July of 2019, the day before I flew to Canada to be on location while they filmed the Hallmark movie called The Christmas Club, which was based upon my novella of the same same name. Um, so that's kind of a long-winded answer on all that. Born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. So I am 
sending such sympathy to people who have got ice, snow, cold, below zero. That stuff's horrible. Um, I've got a heavy sweater on in Phoenix, Arizona this afternoon, where it is currently 67 degrees. So I have nothing to complain about. Um, so that's kind of my background. <laughs> So you and I spoke about something interesting as far as the first Hallmark movie is concerned. You want to share a little bit about the journey to <clears throat> to having your you know novella produced and out there in the Hallmark world? Yes, it, because it's an I get asked that all the time. Well, how did you get into Hallmark? And it's a um, I used a technique I've used in other things that have been successful for me, and it's just so goofy. Um, here's the setup. So I published this novella, The Christmas Club, which was loosely based on a homily I heard at church 30 years earlier. The idea uh, was to do kind things for people, but do them in nice ways. You don't always have to get the big old pat on the, on the back for doing something nice. And don't we all love it? But sometimes it's nicer to people, respectful to do something nice and not expect to get a big old pat on the back. Um, the story involves an older woman who goes in, in 1952, goes into the bank to get her Christmas club money out of the bank, comes out, it blows away in the wind when she slips. And two people see that happen, They two younger people, help her back into the bank. And, and the man says, I'm going to go look for your money. Well, it's gone. I mean, it's Chicago or it's Cleveland. It's windy. It's gone. But he goes out and pulls out money from his own wallet and gives it to her and says, we found your money. So nice thing. She thinks of these nice people found my money, but in a kind way, because it's not like we felt sorry for you, old lady charity case. Um, that was the theme. And as the reviews were pouring in, people were saying this would be a great Hallmark movie. And I thought, oh, okay. And I wasn't really much of a Hallmark. I wasn't much of a TV watcher in general in those days. So I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, right? Hallmark is headquartered in Kansas City. Crown Media, their film division is in uh, Burbank, California, or Studio City. I forget which one. Anyway, so I'm asking people, everybody at the grocery store at Costco, do you know anybody at the Hallmark Channel? Most people looked at me like I was crazy and said no. But one person said, well, my neighbor at the cabin is John Eskinas, who produces Good Witch. And Good Witch is their most successful franchise. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So she said, do you want me to give him a copy? I couldn't get out of Costco to my car to get a copy of the book to hand to her fast enough. And with within three weeks, I was in conversations with John Eskinas that led to the, the sale of my screen rights. Um, with guiding Emily, I thought, okay, I think Sharon's, and this didn't happen. And I'm so happy with Sarah Drew who took the main part, but I kept thinking, well, Emma Stone would be a good Emily. So Emma's from Phoenix. I'm racing around Costco and the grocery and everywhere else saying, hey, does anybody know Emma Stone? And one person said, well, I know her mother's best friend. Do you want me to put you in touch? Yes. I said, of course. And Emma Stone's production people looked at Guiding Emily. They turned it down, but they looked at it, which was pretty extraordinary because she had already won an Emmy at that point. And yeah. to the point of 
the first look was we like it what and this was within weeks of when it first came out and they said but what about the other books in the series and i'm like well let me send that to you this is on a friday i had no idea i hadn't mapped out the other books but a uh, pretty brutal weekend <laughs> ensued where you know no shower no makeup only pajamas on and i'm pounding away outlines for books two and three which i did send on to them so i'm a big believer and that's Part of what I want to do here is I want to ask the question because when you ask it, I find over and over again without chagrin, just people know and stuff moves forward. I love that. It's a, it's a form of manifestation. <clears throat> Put it out yeah. into the world and, you know, see what comes back. Some useful, yeah. some not so useful, but it opens up relationships in areas that one wouldn't possibly imagine. I would I would imagine some of the conversations where they thought you were crazy turned into great conversations about other things and opened your mind to other things. Um, I'm I'm a big believer in manifestation, and we're gonna talk more about that in, you know, in the second part of this. So let's go, let's go through Emily's Emily's journey. Um, Emily and Garth are the primary characters. Emily, of course, is the human, and Garth is the guide dog in the first installment is basically their journeys coming together and coming to each other um, from both perspectives, which was awesome to read. Um, but a lot goes in before the first, you know, word is ever put to the proverbial computer page. So where did the idea come from? And tell us about the process of research before, you know, you actually started writing Emily's story. Thank you for asking that. If for anyone who believes like you and I in manifestation, this whole Emily series is a prime example of that. I was, the idea came, well, I wanna start at the beginning of this. I was attending a black tie fundraiser for a local private library. And I had donated naming rights in my, in my next book, which I had no idea about guiding Emily at the time in my next book is one of the live auction items. I was seated at a table for eight next to um, Steve Pawlowski and his wife. And Steve at the time was the development director for the Foundation for Blind Children. I live a mile from the foundation, have done that for 40 years and have never been in. So we're chatting away, getting along great. And he said, oh, you gotta come next week. You and your husband need to tour the foundation. And of course, I'm thinking, yeah, and I'm going to have to, I'm going to end up writing a big check, aren't I? Um, if I go to you, <laughs> but you know, and shame on me for thinking that, but Brian and I were both so engaged with him the next week, we took him up on his offer. And in that tour, the foundation has a big adult program and they are a school for children as well. We were both. Brian and I were both so moved, fighting back tears, seeing the work that was being done with children, a lot of children with, with severe disabilities. The, the foundation turns no one away. If you need one teacher for two children, they serve you. And then, of course, the adult program as well. So I'm fighting back tears. We go by the Braille, they have a big Braille library, Braille operation, and there's a big check on the wall from Major League Baseball for a million bucks. 
I turned to Steve and said, you know what? I want to put a check on your wall for 2 million bucks for me, but I'm not, I don't know how to, I'm not sure how to do that because I'm not independently wealthy. Um, and I said, but you know what? Books can raise money. I can write a book and I can donate half of the royalties, which I do from Guiding Emily to the Foundation for Blind Children. And I looked at him and said, so what do you need? What do you need this book to convey? And without hesitation, he said, we need the sighted community to be aware that they isolate the visually impaired community. Visually impaired yeah. people are not welcomed. I was shocked by that. And I said, okay, well, I can write that. Um, so that's how it started. And at the, the person who bought the naming rights at that auction at the library was a woman by the name of Emily Maine. And I'm proud to say that when the book and movie came out and did so well before the, when the book came out and did really well, I sent her a copy and she went ahead and donated extra money to the library. Cause she said, Oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm getting more, which was so sweet. Cause it had sold for pretty well. good. And then one of the dogs. And so I told Steve, okay, I'm going to write this book. We're standing there. He doesn't know me really from Adam, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to write this book. I'm, we're going to do this royalty thing. He introduces me to the CEO strolls by in the lobby and I share my vision. He's like, okay, that sounds great. I'm sure they must've been thinking. Yeah, right. But I am a follow through kind of gal. If I tell you I'm going to do it, I will do it. So I, said to Steve, okay, I'm going to need help. I'm going to need lots of research. This book is not going to be, oh, the poor blind girl. Because I already knew I'd already sold naming rights to Emily Maine. So I had a name of a character. Um, this is going to be a person who is blind, who is the whole series, who is attacking life's problems, marriage, divorce, blended families, kid getting bullied at school, disruption at the office blah blah all that stuff but she's just going to be handling it as someone who's blind so it's not going to be blind super person for blind person none of that it's going to be a normal person he said okay good he said i can hook you up with lots of people who can help you with research the first person i met is a woman who has now passed away and i miss her every single day her name was julie roth she was um, she was visually impaired and was an adult transition services um, manager at the Foundation for Blind Children. She helped me enormously. Her guide dog's name was Neoki. He was a black lab and Garth mm. is based on Neoki. I took well, I talked to the doctors at the foundation, the mental health people. Julie ran a um, group counseling session for newly blind adults. And they, there was, I think six of them and they were kind enough to sign waivers to let me attend those sessions. I learned so much from these people and, and one of them is still a friend to this day. I took white cane, white cane training. They just, anything I needed, the answer was sure we can help you. Um, so that was, and so many of those people then 
became beta readers and helped me. I know I've got a mistake in the guiding Emily where a sighted guide has a hand on the shoulder, not the elbow. And that I need, I need, I would love to fix that, but I've sold audiobook rights and it gets complicated. But anyway, there is an area, but I think that's, that's isolated. I also knew I needed to research the guide dog angle of things. That's a little trickier. Um, those organizations, they're hard to get under the covers with, but a local, so again, I'm like racing around Costco and the grocery and all the places I go, the doctor's office, people in the waiting room, I'm the dentist. Does anybody know anybody at one of the guide dog schools? And somebody said, well, one of the local weather gals was a puppy raiser for guide dogs for the blind. And my friend put me in touch with this weather person, Christy Siefkin. Christy said, talk to me at length and said, okay, I will use my contacts and see if we can't get you into guide dogs for the blind. She did. And they opened their doors. I spent three days with them behind the scenes seeing how they operate and they've continued to be beta readers and just wonderful. So uh, I'm just the luckiest author in the world. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're a very determined lucky author. Um, and yeah, and I yeah. very much believe that, you know, the energy you put out there um, will eventually return to you sometimes in surprising ways. And, you know, sometimes in the direct ask, um, I want to, I want to shift just a tiny bit um, I love that the books are so diverse. Um, you know, you tackle the autism spectrum, you tackle, um, you know, cultures and <clears throat> so blended, blended so smoothly. What, um, you know, when, when focusing on writing this kind of book, it, what brought in the other side stories or the companion yeah, I, stories? Yeah. I'm, always interested in diverse people and making everything more inclusive. Um, the The neurodiverse character's name is Drav. He is India Indian. Yep. Drav means faithful in, India, in the Indian language. And I love that because he certainly is that. Um, and he's based loosely on an attorney who used to work for me, who was just wonderful just a wonderful man so I I you know I had just left the practice of law and I I missed working with this guy and I thought well then I'm just gonna let him inspire that character and it made it fun for me to write because I kept thinking okay what would he do and I knew what he would do because I had worked for him for with him for, for 30 years so uh, that it was fun to keep him alive in my mind um, in, in the series, there's another, uh, Emily, one of Emily's best friends is a visually impaired woman named Stephanie and her guide dog's name is Biscuit. And the, they're based on a real guide dog named Biscuit who happened to be Miyoki's best friend in real life, um, at the foundation and his handler who's, who works there. So, you know, people come into your life and you're like, well, yeah, I'm going to write about you. I have to say, we call, um, <clears throat> in, in my uh, family, my little family here, my partner and I, we call our um, guide dogs skilled canine professionals. And we borrowed that name from somebody from another guide dog school. 
um, and and love it. Uh, Garth has quite the personality. He is a bit cocky. Um, he is definitely loving. He has eyes for only Emily. And one of the best things someone you know can say to me, and I and I've heard it many times at this point. They'll say, my God, his eyes follow you wherever you go. He looks, he is watch, he loves you. Um, and, you know, deep down inside, I'm like, I know, <laughs> that's my boy. Um, but it, it never fails to, to send tingles through me when, you know, when somebody that I don't know points that out. Um, tell us about, about coming up with Garth's inner voice. You know, that was... Garth is by far my favorite character to write um, because he he is, in my mind, he is kind of a God. He is kind of God. He is a pure soul. Yes. Always, always for the good, always for everyone else. And he was, so that is fun to write. Everybody loves to write the good guy, or at least I do. I put him, so... The, the original book, Guiding Emily, is a romance, but it's not a male-female romance. The book isn't. It's the love story between Emily and her mm-hmm. journey. This is her eyesight on her honeymoon, and then as she goes through all the steps and everything. And, of course, it's truncated in time because that's how novels work. But So she's going through the despair and... And depression and then get gets training back to independent living and is kind of coming out of that at the same time that puffy garth is becoming a guide dog and at the end the love story is they come together um and i wrote the book that way because it would be a very hard heavy book without garth's little perspective as he's you yeah. know getting his richie cheetos on occasion and so it was meant to lighten it up so that people could could stand it because I am a happy, cheerful kind of writer. Even my murder mystery, I've got two murder mysteries. And one of my reviewers said, um, even though there are dead bodies, it's you know, it's Hinsky's typical, you know, goodwill to all kind of book. And I sort of laughed uh, about that. It made me feel good. I guess I'm I'm Scandinavian Blanc, not Scandinavian Noir in those things. That's beautiful. So I want to go back to Drew again for a moment. I'm wondering, you know, Emily has an accent, and of course, on her honeymoon. Um, was it cathartic to maybe write about that and, and purge some of your own feelings around the accident? And Drew is really instrumental in helping Emily understand that her life will be different, but her life will go on and she can continue being Emily just slightly differently. Yes, it absolutely it was. That's so interesting. I don't think I've ever thought about that till now. But yeah, my, you know, spend 10 weeks in a, you know, in a neck brace and uh, you, you you're processing all kinds of feelings and so i was grateful because i did survive um so yeah i think i did write some of that and you know my co-worker that drove is loosely based upon was very helpful to me in returning to the office so calm 
so yeah, you're going to get this. Yeah, it's going to be fine. Um, with just his simple, pure belief. Um, and it was just wonderful. And that's what drove us. He is very focused and he's not self-interested sort of like Garth and he is if he's on your side he's thinking about you not okay well that might be good for you but it'd also be good for me which is kind of the human condition for most of us I hate to say yeah there's a there's a very poignant um moment about that in the third book where he makes a choice um he he's very self not self-righteous he's very living and righteous and what is you know what's right what's wrong there's very little gray area and even though it would benefit him immensely he makes what he believes is the right choice and i think that him and emily kind of mirror each other in certain ways she is very determined she is very um when she makes a decision she she stands by it she feels it but she's not so rigid that she's that she's not open to seeing other perspectives um i have to fan out for a moment i lost my eyesight at 40 it was sudden and mm. um it, it 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 completely upended my world and so i i came to the series uh through the movie and we're going to talk about that in a moment um and i'm loving the books by the way i can't wait for number five um but i i came to it with trepidation because it is and I write, um, I have not put a book out, but I've written over 400 short stories. Um, and I, I right. want to tell my story oh. in a fiction way, you know, through fiction at some point. But the idea of getting it all right for my community is is still a little daunting for me. And I'm not sure that I, I my voice is mature enough to tell the story I want to tell today. Um, mm. but you give her, you give her the grieving. And of course, like you said, time has to be trun truncated. It's, it's, you know, it's a series of books. So the timing may not be a hundred percent perfect, but some of the situations, the way she grieves, the things that she tells herself and other people. Um, and then as the series goes on, going back to work and living life, becoming a parent, um, you know, you, you allow the readers to, experience situations that we experience almost on a daily basis um i wanted to ask you if you could share maybe not names but where some of the key scenes uh the restaurant of course um you know emily getting lost where did some of those you know situations come from thank you i am so lucky that i had all those supportive people at the foundation to help me with that so the restaurant scene that was something that guide dogs for the blind asked me because i asked them what do you need when i was there doing research i said i promised the money to the foundation and guide dogs for the blind is lucky in that they're near hollywood and silicon valley they are extremely well funded so i didn't feel bad about that and they said okay what we need is you need to show a legitimate service dog being put out of commission, perhaps, by a fake service dog. And I listened to story after hair-raising story yeah. about things that happened. Julie Rock um, from the foundation told me that she and Neoki were assaulted at Disneyland by a um, by a husky, I think it was. And Disney, you know, so she's and Julie is a dog trainer. She was my dog trainer. 
remarkable, best dog trainer I've ever had. She actually showed dogs, I think even once at Westminster, for crying out loud, her dog didn't win, but holy cow. So she knew what she was doing with dogs and she was able to work with Neoki so he didn't get out of service, but she reported it to the people at Disney and they said, oh, well, he, that dog's got a vest. And so we, we can't, our policy is we can't challenge that. They were so afraid of challenging it. So meanwhile, there's this dangerous damn dog. I mean, walking around Disneyland, it's just ridiculous. Um, so I wanted to really show that scene. Maybe we'll talk about this more with the movie. That was the thing I was most disappointed at. Um, Hallmark would not show a dog fight. Yeah. In there. Okay, I get that. Nobody likes dog fights. But they really dumbed down. It's like, no, a dog in a restaurant wants to play with my guide dog in training. Okay. That's that's my only thing that I was that I think was the most disappointing in that, but nonetheless. So that's that scene. Then I talked to Julie about getting lost. What I found, and you all can tell me, is that almost every visually impaired person gets lost on a fairly regular basis. And of course that's terrifying. It's terrifying for me and I'm sighted if I'm out someplace and my GPS takes me someplace I'm not supposed to be. And I'm like, oh, this isn't good. Um, so I spent a lot of time talking to people about that. I think about some of the, go ahead. I have to say, so, you know, early on in my process, um, by cane training, my my mobility instructor told me, please don't, you know, go beyond around the block what we've worked on, um, you know, and there's reasons in, and I had strong, did not really want to listen and decided that I was going to walk to the corner store that's about four blocks from, from the apartment I was living in at the time that I had done thousands and thousands of times there's no way i can possibly get lost there's only one major street crossing i'm gonna be fine and an hour and a half later i'm finally in front of the store sobbing sobbing thinking oh. I, there is no way i can make this walk back home i'm going to have to call an uber for a four block walk but it was so Powering by the time I figured out and got myself where I wanted to go. And, and so reading that and, and thank you for pointing out the difference between the movie and, and um, the first book, because I saw the movie first. And, and when I got to the book, I was like, okay. Um, Cause I, I did feel let down by that scene, but let's, let's talk a little bit about the movie. Um, Eric McCormack of Will and Grace fame plays Garth's voice um and sarah drew from Grey's anatomy please emily what was that like and were you able to attend any in any of the filming yes i've attended filming for both of my movies my husband and i go and i've it's just so much fun i can't tell you it's exhausting because they have 14 hour contracted minimum days and they usually work all 14 hours we weren't there for all 14 hours on both shoots but it's absolutely fascinating to see as an author to see what hear what you've written spoken by actors um 
is quite the moment, I have to say that. We were fortunate enough that um, we sit in Video Village, which is uh, the script supervisor sits there and she's assigned to listen to every word that the actors say and correct them when they go off script. The director of photography sits in there and looks at the banks of cameras to see that, you know, what it all visually looks like and to make sure that, well, there's a famous scene in, scene in Downton Abbey in front of a, an elaborate Victorian fireplace and somebody left a water bottle on the fireplace, which of course didn't <laughs> exist. And there's a Diet Coke can in um, Game of Thrones. So the director of photography is tasked with making sure that kind of junk doesn't happen. In a Hallmark Christmas movie, they're looking to make sure that fake snow is everywhere that fake snow should be. And then the executive producers sit there and we got invited to sit in Video Village with them. It's a little dicey because you go to these things always with the promise that yes, you're welcome for one day. Well, there's no way I you know, booked two weeks at a hotel. I'm wanting to go more than one day, but I have to be respectful. So I just go and keep my mouth shut I'm not going to say, oh, I don't think they really said that or know the intention. No, the time for your input is a long time ago. This is time author to keep your mouth shut and be positive. So you get invited back. And that did happen. Although in the Emily movie, they did ask us some questions for things because there were some things that were just blatantly wrong. And I, I did mention them, they refilmed. So you sit there with your headphones on and watch the actors do these things take after take and from different camera angles. And um, I always thought it would be so glamorous to be an actress. And now I think, oh my God, what a horrible job. <laughs> you have to make screw up your face the same way 30 times. Yeah. 30 times and have somebody constantly at you for your hair and makeup. In the Christmas Club, it was we filmed in Winnipeg in July there was a heat wave. So in addition to having to perform in scarves and heavy coats between takes, everybody would shed all that. But then for all the actresses, there was somebody at your head with a curling iron. Just awful. Plus for any actor, these things are three and four week. Well, they film a Hallmark movie in three weeks. General rule for any filming is in a 14 hour day, they want to have between three and five minutes of um, useful footage for the final product. So a long time to get a little bit, that's for sure. And, you know, short, short gigs. So when you're done with that movie, you're basically unemployed again. Um, that would be tough. It is tough. What do you think about the prospect of um, successor movies? I think it's good. I do think it's good. Unfortunately, the actors strike prevented Sarah from doing Sarah and um, Eric from doing any promotion of the movie. So I have a fairly decent Facebook presence and I just threw my shoulder behind the wheel and networked as hard and fast as I could, hired my own outside PR firm because I want this to be a series for a couple of reasons. I think it would do a wonder, I think people would love it. Viewers would love it. 
I think it portrays visually impaired people in a realistic and favorable light. I know there's a very popular series, I think it's called In the Dark, Wait Until Dark. No, that Wait Until Dark is the Audrey Hepburn movie that's wonderful. In the Dark, where the protagonist, at least in the first series, was an alcoholic and promiscuous and the dog's training school was just a hot mess. I don't think that served, those images don't serve anybody. So I wanted something more positive. Also as an author, that's like the Holy Grail is not just to get a movie made. Now I've had two, but to have a series. Um, so I did all this marketing, got a bunch <clears throat> of people to email Hallmark at um, viewers at hallmarkmedia.com and say, please, let's make this into a series. And I believe it's going to happen, but I, I can't say that for sure, but I'm very hopeful. There's more of that manifestation. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to take a few hands about the, about the books, about the series. So if you have questions about that, we're going to get into employment after that, put your hands up, but I want to ask you, you know, what, what do you want to say to the world about our community? And what do you want to say to our community about Emily and Garth? Okay. Oh, I love those questions. What I want to say to the world is uh, visually impaired people are indistinguishable from the rest of us, um, but yet we isolate them. That's very problematic in a number for a number of reasons. We'll get into this later with the employment thing, but if you believe, as I do, that talent and skill and creativity, the characteristics that society needs to grow and improve are equally distributed among all members of our community. If you believe that, then excluding a large segment of those people means we don't have access to the skills and talents that we need in our society. We're tying one hand behind our back. We just cannot go forward in that way. That's not productive for anyone. And especially after the movie, as I've done more and more research and talked to more and more people, I'll tell you how this happened. The Foundation for Blind Children hosted, um, after the movie came out, an intimate evening with Barbara Hinsky and sold tickets for that. It was a dinner. And I did an hour of behind the scenes about the film. 150 people came, so, which was a sellout sell crowd. I thought, oh my God, who's going to want to do this other than my friends and my family who have to come. But a lot of people did. Half of them were visually impaired. And I had lunch with one of my friends who came, had lunch last Monday. And she said, you know that dinner? She said, if you hadn't seen canes on the table and guide dogs under the, under the chairs, you'd never know that there are all those blind people there. And I thought, well, yeah, because there's no difference. So what, what an interesting perspective. And how doesn't that show how much work we have to do? Um, you know, visually impaired people are still discriminated against as parents. Um, yep. In the medical community, I mean, you guys know all that. So 
uh, is this a time? Should I talk about my big goal for 2024 or should I not yet? Let's get into, let's take a couple of hands first. Um, okay. I'm going to okay. ask folks to, I, I know how much, you know, it's fun to talk to someone. If you can keep your remarks brief, um, if you have questions, get to the questions quickly. Sheila, how many hands do we have right now? Five right now. I think we can do those five and then we will get into the second half of our program. So who's up first, Sheila? Bryn. Hey, hey. Um, so I just wanted to say I went to the Foundation for Blind Children uh, in, in preschool and a, about five, five, six, seven, eight years later, my dad bought a house that just so happened to be right down the street from the from the new location that they moved to on 12th Street Northern. Um, and so I started going back in the summertime for their summer programs for, you know, for elementary and, and high school kids. And I got a lot from the foundation for blind children. And uh, a lot of the names that you were saying were people that I, that I knew. Um, and so I just wanted to say thank you for your contribution to the foundation for blind children and everything that you have done, um, for the blind community. And, uh, yeah, I used to live very close to you. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> awesome. Brent is our executive producer. <laughs> it's very cool. What is the small world, right? Right. Yeah. When you're like, I lived a mile from the from the foundation, I'm like, duh, me too. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. All right, Sheila, who's up next? Jane. Oh, hi, Jane. Hello, Barb. It's Jane. And I'm glad to be back here to talk to you in person, I guess, virtually. Um, first of all, strong, strong comments of, of respect and regard for how you have written your characters, both Garth, love those Cheetos, we fight for them. <laughs> and, and Emily, um, you have asked, what is it that is important to us as folks who are blind. And the thing that I want to respond with is that I hope you will keep asking visually impaired individuals how they feel, how they give up or quit because it's too effing scary to deal directly with some people when their little snide service dogs tackle you or bark at you and your dog still has to work and behave in an excellent spirit. So keep asking people hard questions. And uh, any question you send my way, I will answer you. But the most important thing uh, that you said to, to, to my ears today is if you don't know they are blind, you won't know if you're all sitting at dinner. And that, in a way, uh, is an issue I would love for you to contend with, is that after a while, folks who are blind can sometimes, and I've done it, so I can only speak for me, we, we demean other folks with disabilities because we uh, are more easy to more easily accepted at times and other disabilities are more visible. So the more visible they are, the harder it is for the rest of the world to 
accept and welcome them. So that's an issue I would love for you to see about addressing as you're able to. Anyway, it's good to hear your voice. It's great. So I'll shut my mouth, maybe. Thanks, Jane. That is that's an interesting. Yeah, Barbara. I'm taking notes like crazy. All right, Sheila. Kayla. Hi. Um, I don't have a question per se. Um, I had a question. Go ahead and promote. Um, <laughs> Barb, I'm so glad you are here and all you do. Um, that that event that Barb was talking about uh, for the movie premiere, I actually got to be there. So it was fabulous. And I got to meet her live and in person. So um, I'm taking those bragging rights. Um <laughs> And um, I also want to just let everyone know that Barb will be back um, and doing an interview with me on the 23rd at 7 p.m. Eastern. Um, And so join us there and hopefully we'll get a little more into the movie and all of that and stuff, too. So um, she's sticking around at least a bit here. (laughs) So, yeah. And hi. That's it. So, yeah, I hope. I hope everyone who has not read the book reads them. They're great. And um, uh, there's so many things in them that I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can relate to that. So it's great to kind of feel seen. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have to leave because I'm actually in another meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for coming. And I'll definitely be there on the 23rd. Um, All right, Sheila, we have one more, right? Deanna. Hi. <laughs> um, I'm very excited to have a chance to talk to you because um, I think that what makes your books better is all the research you've done. Um, I've written a book of myself, but I wrote it not not really to be famous or anything, but I wanted it as a gift for my mother's 90th birthday when I couldn't travel to see her Um because of COVID. And my book is called 50 Years of Walking with Friends. And it talks about my life with nine of my now 10 guide dogs and what they've meant to me. So I'd love to be able to get you a copy of it some way or other, just because I think that it, uh, you know, not every guide dog is a Garth. (laughs) Some of mine were not, but I still love them. And we were still partners in an effort to make our way through the world. And one of the things you mentioned was a dog attack. <laughs> and not not a very good guy dog, but an adorable dog. And I were leaving the vet. And a pit bull came running across multi-lane road to attack my little girl. Oh, no. And, um, the dog had her down, had her by the throat, and I grabbed the dog's collar, and I grabbed her tail, and I thought, I know how pit, pit bulls do things, and she won't let go. She'll keep moving her jaws to draw more and more of the, fortunately, my little girl was a, a small black lab, and they have a lot of loose hide. <laughs> So the dog really didn't have anything vital in her mouth, but I knew she would keep 
advancing One until thing, she did. Yeah. So I thought, what can I do? I can make her let go by hurting her, which is something I would never do to any dog, except my dog was on the line. So I grabbed that tail and I cranked it. And she did let go in order to try to, to, to bite me. And I pulled her away and I held her. She was not a big pit bull. She was about a 35 pound dog. My dog was about 60 pounds. Um, so I held her until her owner came up and put a leash on her. And then he took off. I didn't know who he was or who she was. I know her name was Ginger. And I could tell by touching her that, that she was a pit mix of some kind. I got my dog to her feet and went back into the vet to have her checked over. And fortunately, um, she had not um, damaged anything, just some superficial superficial punctures on um, the, the spur of her throat. And my little girl continued to work and was not afraid. But for most guide dogs, that would have been the end. They would yeah. not have wanted to leave home. They would have been afraid to guide again. Or they would have turned fear aggressive, um, lunging at other dogs. And so therefore, they would not be safe to take into public and use again. So, um, yeah, <laughs> that's a big problem. Thank you, Deanna, for, for being so raw and honest with us. Well, yeah, I'm, <laughs> as I said, my dogs look out for me. I look out for them. So even <laughs> though they tell us that if your, dog is a, yeah. Yeah, if your dog <laughs> is attacked, let go of them so they can fight for themselves. Well, I did let go of my dog, but it was because I was determined to get that little monster off mine. <laughs> and can, I didn't care can, if I got bit. <laughs> is your book on Amazon? Yes, it is. Okay, then no worries. I will get get myself your okay. book. I want. Have you written this? Have you written the scene into your book? I mostly gloss over some of the tough stuff. I think I wrote about it, but I would have to go back and look because you know, nine guide dogs. There's a lot of events. A lot of in there. <laughs> but, I, you know, this reminds me. So I finished the fifth book. I'm mm -hmm. finishing the editing of it. But I'd like, this is a little different spin on it, where the owner steps <laughs> in, the, where the, the handler who is blind steps in, because in the first Emily book, it's the puppy raiser. Yeah, um, no, no. So there are I'd some like of us that will do whatever they can. For, um, for mm -hmm. weeks after that, I took a rolled up newspaper with me. Um to whack any dog that came near my dog so she knew that she was safe. Yeah. <laughs> Even if it was wow. a friendly dog, I would I would stamp my foot and yell, go home, and really sound like I meant it. Because I wanted my dog to know that I wouldn't let anyone hurt her. Yeah, and you did. Well, I need I need another scene like that and maybe I'll get some more stories too okay well if you get my book i think there is my um, email address and phone number in the back of it um okay. and 
My name is Deanna Quietwater Noriega, and it's 50 years of walking with friends. And my second book is out there too on Amazon. It's another book I wrote for my mom um, called um, Dogwood Blossom Growing Up Native American. Okay. Deanna's a beautiful writer. Thank you so much, Deanna, for, uh -huh. for sharing your story. Yeah. You've got one more new hand, Anthony, if you want to take it. All right. We'll take one more, and then we're going to transition into some employment conversation. Who's up? Becky. Becky Dunkerson. Oh, Becky, welcome back to Sunday Edition. Hello. Hello there. Um, I just wanted to um, kind of ask quickly. Um, I actually, as you were speaking have to admit that I have not read your books, but I saw the movie. Very compelling. Um, I now have your books because as you were speaking, I went to Amazon and purchased. Mm -hmm. um, but I see there's other um, books out there with your, that you wrote. Um, another series that was a set of nine. Is that also related to Guiding Emily or is that like a different, section of of topic and stuff thank you for asking that so the nine books are my rosemont series which are not related to emily although i keep seeming to want to write about service dogs and i've got a young man who's now gone to guide dogs to the at the end he's gone to guide dogs to the blind to become a service dog trainer so i seem to like those topics um, and I've got two books in a mystery thriller series. I've got my paws and pastries series. All my books have dogs and cats, mostly dogs because I'm a dog lover. But my editor keeps saying, come on, there's people who read and love cats. Put cats in your books. And I do like cats. I just prefer dogs. Um, and then there's the wishing tree series. I'm looking at my wall. Yeah, that's where I've got all my books posted and and that's what I've written that's my catalog but the guiding Emily series are the ones that focus on guide dogs exclusively focus on guide dogs and visually impaired people and others okay thank you yeah you. you are gonna love them Becky we can uh we can do an unofficial book club <laughs> after you get down <laughs> get done with at least the first three all right so we're gonna take some more hands in a little while but um one of the things in, in my initial conversation with Barbara um, and people who listen to Sunday edition on a regular basis know that I, I believe that the employment statistics for our community are dismal. Um, the opportunities are challenging. Uh, I've been looking for work for four years. Um, spoiler alert. I took a position recently that I'm really excited about. I'll share more about that in the upcoming weeks. But um, I've been saying for the longest time that, you know, we need to approach it from a more macro level, um, from a different from a different level, you know, shining the light on successful blind folks in their jobs and in there is great. And I don't think we should stop doing that. But there are other ways that we can try to penetrate through the veil that kind of separates us from the work world. And Barbara, you said a sentence. I don't know if you remember. I gasped. Um, because it was something that I had been saying for a while. Um, and that was approaching the human resources community. Um, so I want to take a step back and ask you to kind of 
um, recreate the mission that, that the mission statement for us. Um, what is your mission for 2024 and beyond? Um, and, and, you know, why is, why is it your mission for 2024? Okay. I love that question. And now that you framed it that way, I'm looking at my, oh shoot. I was going to read the actual mission statement. Cause I'm one of those people who actually has, here it is who has a written mission and vision and business plan and all of that. So let me see if, because we were, I was refining it with my life coach last week. Uh, For those listening, it is in the show notes. Um, so you can read the direct statement there as well. Okay. Well, good. Okay. So I'm just going to go, go with it then. My mission is, in 2024 is to participate in an effort that will be a joint effort. I will need help from others, obviously, to decrease unemployment among the visually impaired community that wants jobs, because everybody doesn't want a job, but decrease unemployment by 10%. And Anthony, you were kind enough to confirm my little thumbnail sketch that the with 70% unemployment among employable visual, visually impaired, 70% staggering, um, that would, that's 800,000 people. So decreasing unemployment by 10% would be employing 80,000 people. And I want those jobs. Well, I guess they could come from anywhere, but I'm targeting the sighted community. Um, you know, thinking back in my work life as a lawyer, and I worked for a corporation, I don't remember working with anyone visually impaired. And I had, at one point, I had a thousand people working for me. And I worked with people all over the country in jobs that could easily have been done. Now I know, now that I know more about it by visually impaired people. So with that idea of talent, creativity, whatever, being evenly distributed in the population, we are we are limiting our um, candidate pool to our detriment as a society. And we just need to quit doing that. I'm around um, people all the time and people yammering about, you can't, especially right now with the unemployment being so large, you can't find anybody to fill jobs. Jobs are going unfilled. Can't find qualified people. We want people who are problem solvers, people who think outside the box. That's such a big buzzword. Well, then I don't know of a community that thinks outside the box and problem solves better than the visually impaired people I have met. 24-7 you know, that experience has led all you to basically have PhDs in problem solving. And we need to use, we need to embrace you in the, in the sighted world. So I've made this goal. I am a believer that I don't have to know how to accomplish it because I do feel like this is a divinely or universe, whatever, inspired goal and I will be led to the resources just like being on this call with all with all of you people will give me ideas Anthony and I have already talked about some ideas 
earlier this week, I've consulted my life coach again and gotten some training on quotes, how to land the stage. That's you all may know that. I didn't know that was the term, how to get a speaking gig. I would love to get speaking gigs at conferences for HR professionals so that we can showcase the capability of visually impaired people across all jobs with the exception of maybe flying airplanes and driving cars. Other than that, it's all, as I understand, it's all open. So anyway, I'll quit talking now because I could just ramble on and on and I don't want to, but that's my vision. I need help. Anthony and I have talked about some formatting things or some way to, ways to go about that, but um, I'm anxious to get thoughts. I, I want to ask, um, circling back to Emily, to the to the series for a moment. Um, you have Emily as a computer programmer. Stephanie is a teacher. Was there any meaning or reason for picking those professions? Yes, thank you for asking that. The programmer came twofold. I went to a guide dog graduation at Guide Dogs for the Blind when I was there. And there was a man um, who was a senior programmer. I think he might've worked for Apple, but you know, in San Francisco, they're just knee deep in high tech jobs. You could tell, I could tell he was wealthy from the way he was dressed. He had a big old Rolex on his arm. This guy had a good job and was, was doing stuff. And he said, maybe in his early fifties, I would say when he was talking with his guide dog, he said, oh, he couldn't wait to go to work on Monday. Cause then maybe more people would come in and talk to him because he had a dog to see his dog. And I, that sort of mm. made my thing because, oh my God, people are going in and talking to you. Um, but he was a tech executive. So that landed in my mind. And then I was, um, I ran into Eyes on Success, which I'm sure everybody here is familiar with, Nancy and Peter Torpy's yeah. wonderful podcast. And they've had me on several times. And so I've talked behind the scenes with them. And of course, they're both PhD physicists. And um, I talked to them, well, what kind of jobs would they have? And, and listening to their podcast and with their personal input, I knew I could I had the book situated in San Francisco, lots of high tech industry there. And I knew that these were jobs that could even be done better by someone who is visually impaired. So that was Emily's job. And then the teacher, I don't know where that came from, but I think I was talking to someone who is a visually impaired elementary school teacher and you know, it was just fine. I, I love the, the reality of, you know, the things that Emily, you, you know, the screen readers that she's using, the tools that she's using, you're very descriptive um, and, and really the layer of, of what we do um, and how it, it works for us, doesn't work, why it's not working. Um, how much, how much help do you get with that? How, you know what? I'm going to rephrase that. How often do you write a scene and then have to go back and change it based on feedback? 
I don't know as I have to change it on feedback too often because I get help as I'm drafting it. You know, I'm real writing a book that you want to have longevity can be difficult. I mean, think of pagers, think of flip phones and, you know, all the things that aren't things now that we've got smartphones. So I'm conscious of not wanting to date my books, but I want them to be current. I actually had an email from a woman who didn't know about the pen friend. Um, <laughs> and I think the pen friend has been around for a long time. So um, someone else has told me about a blind screen reader too, which I think is a brand new kind of cell phone. Oh, the blind and shell, yes. Blind shell, yeah, blind shell. And I thought, well, I don't know, maybe that's too cutting edge. Um, and I don't want to get in trouble with any misrepresenting any tech. And I don't want the tech companies, the product companies to get mad at me. So it's a little bit of a sticky wicket, but I do think it is important. I never dreamed that someone in the community, visually impaired community wouldn't know about the devices, but I thought, no, the sighted community needs to know there's just all kinds of ways to do this. And the people at the foundation are wonderful with that. So circling back, I want to um, bring up Peter Alchel, who is the um, chair of our employment committee. Peter, um, you've been listening to the conversation. What are your thoughts on reaching out to conferences and, and, and you know, university programs for human resource professionals? And would you agree with the statement that, you know, forming some sort of a panel conversation with Barbara being, you know, the lead, quote unquote, the star of the show, so to speak, um, with those of us from the community would be impactful to present at some of these conferences and and maybe at you know programs at universities what are your thoughts on that peter uh for, thank you uh, uh and both of you and thank you barbara for joining us um before i uh talk uh give me my thoughts i want to give you a sense barbara of sort of my background i've been totally blind since birth uh and spent much of my life in human resources as a totally blind guy uh mostly in the arena of leadership development and uh, uh, change management and sort of the whole diversity uh, thing with a focus on workplace conflict. I say all that just to sort of give uh, to say a couple of things. Um, the, but first to answer your question, you know, I'm delighted uh, to have somebody like uh, you on our side. Um, and I'm delighted that you have sort of learned so much from your experiences that you've taken risks uh, to, to make that happen. Um, um, and the, of, of course, the answer to your question, Anthony's question is yes. Uh, I think it would be a wonderful uh, thing for us to look at. But I want to say, and I want to say a couple of things to sort of put some more stuff in the stew, uh, as, as it were. Um, so, Barbara, you talked about uh, the whole issue of, of sort of skills evening, uh, being evened out through the population. And, I, and largely, of course, that's true. And you also said something that is also true, which is most of us blind people are not going to drive cars or fly airplanes or drive trucks. There are certain things we're probably not going to be able to do. Uh, and, and there are other things probably too, depending on, of course, how, how how much vision we have or don't have. And this gets to a whole different conversation. But I think there is a balance between those two things. Because if we say 
you know, we're just as talented as everybody else. People are going to say, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and not take us too seriously. We got to find a way of conveying both sides respectfully, if that makes sense. Um, and um, the same thing sort of applies with the idea of putting blind people, uh, the community in a good light, which is absolutely important. And you also said, Barbara, which is true, uh, that there are, uh, you know, the, there are problems within the disability community, uh, substance abuse being one of them, that's higher in the disability community than than the, the non-disabled community. So how do we convey that message in a way that's respectful? Because what I'm concerned about is sort of the, the myth of blind people being sort of superhuman. And the problem mm -hmm. with that particular part of the conversation is that if we're superhuman, then then we're too good to be hired. It's sort of a, it's a, it's a weird paradox, but it's happened to me uh -huh. a lot in going through job interviews. So I just want to sort of, Barbara, get your reaction to that, um, that comment and pose any questions you might have for me. Uh, and, um, and then we can move forward. You know, I, I think those are great comments. I think in approaching sighted employers, there does has to it does have to be done respectfully and carefully because you don't want to come at it from the standpoint of oh you idiots right. you prejudiced idiots because um, that's going to put people's back up right most people are kindly intentioned and even educating somebody can can put their back up so I think. I don't know. I've been, as I'm developing what I think would be the pitch, and I'm not going to do anything without, if if you give me the time and direction, I would love to have it from, from your organization without input from a community that I am not part of. So this own voices thing is powerful, but yet I think from someone on the other side needs to, can more gracefully open doors than maybe you can yourself um so i think it my approach would be and uh, nobody's interested in anything except what's going to solve their problem let's be honest with this um doing good in the world is kind of generally second down so i would approach the employment situation with hey you all haven't have a need you cannot fill spots with qualified people I have a solution for you that perhaps you haven't considered and then go from there. And the solution is yes, you know, there's all this technology makes doing jobs accessible. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and I would also say, now of course I've lost my train of thought th that um, we, um, I'll um, jump in, Peter, while you reform yeah. your thoughts. Go, go ahead, Anthony. Yeah. I think I think a really good question, and I've been I've been holding this to this moment. Um, it's gonna fit perfectly in. I think one question that we have to tackle um before we set out with with programming and, and approaching is how do we address the fear of blind in you know in the sighted community? And we all talk about it in the various community calls. And when we're together at conventions or having dinner together, you know, we all talk about one of the biggest things we will stand on a corner 
asking for directions and people will continuously walk by until you get that person that will stop and, and help you out. Or, you know, the, the famous study that says people would rather have prostate cancer than go blind. So I think to have a successful um, presentation of here's an, you know, here's an, an alternate look that you may not have looked at yet, but there's some prejudices that are inner, you know, nobody wants to admit it. Nobody wants to feel it, but you're scared of going blind yourself. So I think if we can find a way to answer or help, maybe not fully answer, but, you know, come to ways of thinking to present that in a way that it doesn't, like Barbara was saying, you know, you're stupid. You're not going to go blind by sitting at dinner with us. Um, you know, you don't want to approach that way. So how do we work that into the larger conversation without offending or scaring anyone further. And I think, I think Barbara, your book, and I know I, I remember, thank you, Anthony, for jumping in, uh, is, is you, uh, your journey talked about how you sort of interacted with blind folks and learned a lot from the experience, right? About our capabilities, our struggles. One of the things that struck me was the whole issue of loneliness that you talked about at work, which I can absolutely identify with. Uh, and that computer uh, executive who, who said, Essentially, from the way I heard you tell the story, I look back, I look forward to getting back to work because people will come to my office and talk to me because I now have a dog. I mean, you know, yeah. how sad is that? And I had yeah. similar experiences. Um, and it's 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 a real sort of struggle. And you 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 have a way to talk about this in a sort of a unique way that we as blind people do not. And I think that that uh, to me is sort of putting on my public relations hat for a second, is is your hook. And we can we can either stand by you and help you make your presentation or we can give you some guidance or we can do a number of things. Um, but I think, as Anthony said it really well, people are really afraid of becoming blind and they're also afraid of saying the wrong thing. You know, uh, you know, can we say oh, yeah. the word see? I see that, you know, in front of blind people. Well, of course, the answer is yes, you can. But people don't know that. And we're now in this sort of weird uh, culture of people don't are scared to talk across boundaries and you you've done mm -hmm. that and I think that is that's that's your hook and I think it's a very powerful one this is so so incredibly helpful um yeah I mean I worked in on three-story office building there was a guy who didn't work for my company but there was a gentleman who was blind in the floor above and I had met him a couple of times at the I knew his name and I had introduced myself, um, you know, at the little sandwich shop. And I saw him one day in the hallway and I just got out of his way because I thought, okay, get out of his way. But you know, he continued on. And I later I thought, you know, that was probably an isolated thing. He knew I was in the hallway. I'm sure he heard me. And why didn't I say, hey, it's Barb from the second floor. We met before. Why didn't I greet this guy? I would greet anybody else, even strangers. You know, I thought about this years later and I thought, oh, yikes, ouch. Um, so there is a lot of just dumb and don't know what to do. And that's that's an easily solved problem. But, but see, I think people do know what to do. And I'm going to put on my diversity training hat for a second. One of the activities uh, I used to do when I ran my uh, diversity programs is I would get people into mixed groups. And I'd say, think about a time when you work with somebody with, who is significantly different from you. 
you know, however you want to define that, somebody was significantly different from you. How did you make the relationship work? What skills did you use to um, to foster that relationship, whether it be working or romantic or whatever? And what was fascinating yeah. is it didn't matter what the difference was. It was a series of, of skills like obviously listening well, you know, speaking clearly, um, you know, uh, um, empathizing with the situation, walking the other person's shoes. This is stuff that if people, um, we do this, some of us more than others perhaps, but we do this on a fairly regular basis in our, in our, our day-to-day lives. And if we can connect people to those experiences, mm -hmm. they're more likely to to take another risk and, and do more of that if they know they have the skills already. Uh, and I found that to be a very powerful approach to sort of move the the process forward, as it were. I think another thing that would would serve us well is we did a series of conversations about dating. And one of the things that came up from from a lot of sighted folks is you're not going to be able to read my visual cues. You're not going to see the faces that I make. You're not going to see if I make a hand gesture or if I'm turning away. And that's daunting if I'm going to have to continuously explain to you what's going on with me or in the world. And I, I think that that's that's something that we have to tackle as well. Yes, there's going to be a point where we need some form of assistance. Um, you know, the elevators are out. Where are the stairs? Or, you know, whatever it be, there's, there's going to come a time where we need information and we're going to have to ask somebody for it. But I think a, a large perception out there is that we need way more than we actually need from folks. Um, and, and, and then there's the whole visual cue things. You know, how do we pick up? I know my tone of voice and I can hear, you know, I hear breath from folks like I've never heard it before. And, and I'm, I would imagine, you know, again, I'm only eight years into this. Um, you know, I, I marvel at the folks that are really good at echolocation. And I'm going off on a tangent, so I'm going to rein myself back. But I think, you know, again, in tying in with the fear is also you know, reshaping the expectations and the assumptions that are out there. Um, I want to bring up Lori as well. I know Lori works in the employment space, um, and, I, and I'm sure Lori's got some comments that she'd like to share up to this point. Lori? Hi, Anthony. Thank you for inviting me to join. Certainly. I um, A couple of things. Um, I think a big issue that's often unspoken is the amount of people who are blind or low vision who have left the employment arena, meaning they are no longer counted as seeking employment. Uh, maybe they had a case with vocational rehab and the case got closed for whatever reason. Um, that's about 50% of working age blind people. Um, so that is something that's often unaddressed. Wow. And I think that we have to really look at ways to help people who are blind or low vision use the tools in their toolbox to become more effective when interacting with employers. Um, yes. I, also, I also work with APH Connect Centered and I specifically handle issues related to careers <laughs> as an employment. And Barbara, we have some fantastic interviews on our YouTube channel that you might want to take a look at. My first career conversations I got to interview was a blind, well, a low vision mortician. Um, and 
forgetting that I had video turned on. So when she was saying like, oh yeah, the distance between this point and this point on your body when we're rebuilding a specific part of your body is this, is the same as this other area. I'm sitting there doing the motions and then in the middle of it realized, oh, my video is on. So <laughs> um, there, there what are- is, What is the YouTube channel again? I'm taking notes like mad, but I didn't get that. It's a, um, it's- oh. I can probably send it to, okay. to uh, Anthony, but it's APH Connect Center. And then we okay. have, uh, or I'm sorry, APH Career Connect. Okay. And Career okay. Connect is all one word. And Anthony, if you don't mind, I, I also want to say that we in the Employment Committee of ACB have also done similar interviews, which are available, and I'll I'll, I'll send you the link of, of our hours. And, and one of the things that we want to do on the employment side, and I, I suspect that APH wants to do the same thing, is we want enough to branch out and interview either employers who have a track record of hiring people who are visually impaired to, share, to get their experiences or folks who are trying to make that happen. And of course, that includes you, of course, because we'd love to interview you. Um, but to, so that employers can hear from other employers with a track record that, yeah, this works really well. You know, here's here here's what we had to do. Here's here's how it's benefited us. Uh, and um, so I just wanted you to be aware that you know uh, these interviews are in other places besides APH's good work. There's there's also some fantastic work out there um, from Disability In, and that's Disability and then a colon I N. Okay. Um, and they work very closely with large corporations um, all over the place to work on employing people with all different types of disabilities, not specifically blindness. But mm -hmm. as a result of that, they hold uh, annual conferences and do some trainings and things like that, um, and really do work to help foster a more inclusive uh, work environment. You know, one thing I was thinking as as Laurie was talking, I know book five is, is in the editing process, but maybe you could consider, you know, in Emily's sixth adventure, um, having, you know, having her come across a, you know, a sighted uh, voc rehab counselor um, or a program that is experiencing funding issues and overpopulation that they, you know, they, it often happens that the caseload is so heavy that you know the proper amount of attention to someone newly coming well anyone really that sometimes you know sometimes people will fall through the cracks of it of the attention needed and you know they'll often come back to us well what do you need well i i don't know i just went blind you know a few months ago i don't know what i need yours you know i'm hoping you're going to tell me what i need um right. you know and approaching right. it from the point the these the agencies are so overworked understaffed as as are you know all of the government agencies that support people um but you know that's another negative impact and often you know you'll be sent down a rabbit hole that doesn't necessarily apply to your situation because they don't know you well enough to know how to evaluate your situation and they're putting you on a path that some was successful for someone else um, and that might be a, an avenue to explore for um, um, for the books, but also in you know in our wanting to to reach out to human resource professionals specifically. 
I hear a bunch of hands going up. So Barbara, um, I want to ask you, what what questions do you want do you want to ask our folks? What do you want to hear from from our audience? My we could be here all week. I am taking <laughs> such notes. I mean, I kind of want to know if anybody's had any success with Indeed or um, any of those um, online work things. But I guess, first of all, I'd like to know what jobs do people really want to have that they haven't been able to get? Well, I want to be president. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I will tell you this. Another another frustrating situation is when you're dealing with something like Indeed or, you know, going through LinkedIn and yeah. you're, you know, 12 to 15 pages into something and then you find that piece that's not accessible and you can't go any forward mm -hmm. and you need to scramble to either use your IRA, which is, you know what IRA is, it's in the books, um, you know, or find someone that can help you figure out what, what's the button, where is the button? It has to be here, but it's not labeled or the form, you know, the form filled. Um, but let's 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 start opening up to our audience. Sheila, who's up? Sarah. Going once. You're still you might have muted, to... Sarah. Okay. There I'm so go. sorry. You're all right. Hi there. This is um uh, awesome. First of all, thank you so much, Barbara, for uh, sharing all of your research efforts, but all of your um, very, very positive um, attitude toward making a change in the um, outlook of uh, the blind community within the rest of the workplace. Uh, I am a HR um, uh, professional that uh, has a recruiting background. And when you stated uh, participating in, some, uh, in getting in front of HR managers, having been a recruiting leader and been faced with trying to convince my hiring manager that someone with a disability could do the job, it was often challenging. And I think that from the perspective of reaching out to HR, that's a wonderful, wonderful first step but more importantly, the decisions come from the top. It has to be believed and um, uh, adhered to or expressed as something that the, the CEO and the C-level individuals are committed. And then it filters down because my hiring managers would perhaps say, this sounds like a great idea, but I just don't think it's going to work when I go into the leadership team. So everyone looks at what someone else is going to think or what mm -hmm. that outcome would be. So perhaps when uh, one talks to point. the HR leaders, it has to be moved, you know, further to uh, the C-suite level to get that commitment and that buy-in. But more importantly, also to just demonstrate, like you said, most people have not been exposed to individuals that are blind or, or visually impaired in their entire life, except what they see on TV or, you know, in, in the media or what have you. So it's almost like we want to do the same type of jobs that just about everybody else does, except, of course, you don't want me to be the brain surgeon. You know, obviously that would not be the case. But uh, when I am talking to people and helping them in their job search efforts, 
that's the the main thing. You know, I, I have a, a dream and a goal and a vision to do that. I just want to be able to have that same opportunity. And what's more important that I used to try to stress to people, it's not uh, thinking of, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do with this blind person or how I don't think that they can do it. Instead of focusing on what you think I cannot do, perceive it from the perspective, what can we do to enable that person to do it and achieve it? Because that's the mindset I'm taking, because I know having lost my vision midlife uh, in my career, I had to rethink Mm -hmm. how to do simple things that took me mere seconds to do instead of Mm -hmm. scanning that resume. I now have to take 10 minutes because my screen readers got to read the whole resume when I could go boom, boom, boom and look at two things. Yes or no. So it's focusing on this person can still do it. But what workarounds can we do in order to help that person achieve the job? So that's one of the things that I hope the message that you do get uh, to uh, per you know to to put in front of HR individuals. But we'd love to be. I'm a part of the employment committee to be a tag along because it's a, it's very powerful to see when people can go. Oh, that's what a screen reader does. Well, make your whole site accessible. Don't do part of it. Make the whole thing. Sarah. I'm in HR. I'm, I'm going to jump in and ask you off the top of your head, are there any uh, things, tools or, or testimonials? Is there anything that you think would have helped you be more successful in that space? I'm talking about the, the higher up space and, you know, in assisting the hiring managers to then convince the higher ups. Is there anything you can think of off the top of your head um, that we could start working on, you know, now? Yes. Well, to be honest with you, what helped me, it was I had to break down, as, just as, as Barbara was saying, so many employers today are saying we can't find qualified people. Then I, as a recruiting manager, would say, look what it's costing us to keep this position open and vacant until you find your you know, Marvel superhero come in and take the job. Versus mm. this, we have a, per, a person who has all the qualifications. We just need to work with IT. We just need to work with some accessibility coaches, et cetera. So it's a cost benefit. Weigh it out. How much does cost it cost to analysis. keep that position yeah. vacant versus you already have this person and most of the tools that this person requires are already paid for by you know state-supported programs. So mm-hmm. what's your excuse now? Barbara? So I, I hope that yeah, helps. Yeah. And also, as, as one final mm. segue, Kudos to you for putting together the book. I, too, am an author, and uh, I uh, just released a book talking about finding a purpose in your life and career, and that's making those career changes. And also telling people, just like um, Anthony said, every life has a story, and it deserves to be told. And I am totally committed to being able to help others do that, because I have another forthcoming book on how to self-publish and market your own book. So Barbara, kudos to you and continue to let God bless you and use you in our community. Thank you. That is, that is just fantastic. I Like I said, my hand's going to be broken by the time I'm done with this. I'm taking so many notes. Let me ask you this. And maybe that's something really to say, but I'm thinking with employers, like you say, the benefit announced leaving the job undone or worse yet, hiring somebody who isn't qualified. Exactly. But I would think if you hire someone who is visually impaired and they're working that job, 
Is it likely that there's going to be as much turnover? Nope. Nope. As a matter of fact, we have statistics, lower turnover rates, better retention. Yep. Yeah. And cost companies tons of money. Exactly. But again, when you talk to HR, because HR typically doesn't have a seat at the table when it's talking about finances, it's being able to turn that, that, into dollars and cents and that's what gets their attention and uh, it is we've got too many statistics about how well performing you know individuals with disabilities and um and and retention uh of those individuals within you know the workplace so less turnover and it's not costing you so again what's your excuse and i want to make a comment um because we talked about the employment uh people getting hired there's another almost de- equally disturbing part of the problem, which is people leaving because because of technology issues primarily or uh, sort of the politics of the job, but primarily technology issues. People are leaving because the technology has changed and the employers don't seem interested in trying to work with them to work around those changes. And so not only are people not hiring talented people who are qualified, they're losing them. Yeah. And um, I think that's, that's, you know, people leave all the time for lots of reasons, right? I mean, you know, we all know this, there's the work, there's a work churn and everything else. But when you have really super, you know, committed people doing the work who can't do the work because the technology has changed and nobody seems to want to work with them to try to figure out a way of working around it, we got a problem. So I just want to sort of focus that- on the opposite, opposite part of the problem. I'm sorry, go ahead. And Peter, is that... Are you talking about people just in the general population or is that? I'm sorry, I'm talking, I'm talking, I, I wasn't clear. I'm talking about blind folks. So blind folks get hired okay. to do X, right? And they're doing good work and uh, well-respected. I know several of uh, people like that and they are doing well. And then their technology changes, you know, so that, so that the software that the organization uses becomes less successful or not accessible to the speech software they're using. And instead of employers, from the stories I've heard from these blind folks, Instead of working, trying to find ways to work around the problem, they let them go. I mean, what a waste of talent! Just, yeah. What a waste of yeah. talent! Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, and you know, I mean, you know, Sarah said it well. You know, you know, keeping talent is a major challenge. Why throw the talent away for no good reason? Yeah, and you know what, oh, yeah. Barbara? I think the main thing is is you hit it very pointedly at the beginning of your uh, conversation, we as a group need to keep asking the questions. And unfortunately, the people in the higher up positions within corporations won't ask those service providers, those software or technology providers, why can't you make this accessible? What can we do in order so that it can be totally inclusive? You got it on your website. You say you're all inclusive, but yet what can we do to make this happen. And most of the time it comes back, oh, they say they can't do it. Well, why can't they do it? You got to mm-hmm. keep asking. This don't is a me, mission. Don't, don't get me started on uh, IT uh, uh, <laughs> oh, no. craziness. Yeah. Yeah, I know, crazy. we'll be here all, yeah. Yeah, so. exactly. This this is a mission that Sunday Edition is committed to. Um, I, I believe, Barbara, we, we discussed at least once, um, you know, making this a series, coming back a few times throughout the year, updating you know, the conversation, updating your progress. And, and hopefully, you know, if, 
if it does go in that direction of being able to put panels together and things, springboarding through the employment committee and, and Sunday edition. So I, I think we should definitely focus one call at some point in the near future on, you know, managing the technology when, you know, when you do have the job and, and what are the best ways to highlight to your employers that, you know, exactly, you know, you have me here and I'm good. Spend a little bit of money and time here rather than a lot of money and potentially getting someone who's not nearly as good as I am. Um, all right, Sheila, who is up next? Margie. Margie, welcome back to Sunday Edition. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Barbara, thank you for being here. I want to tell you, I'm not a huge reader, but I could not put your books down. And I'm delighted to know you're doing a, another book or two or three or four. Thank you. Yeah. I loved your books. Um, I want to ask what I believe is a rhetorical question, unless somebody has factual information. I've heard since I became an adult, I'm <clears throat> as a blind person, the, st the statistics around the unemployment rate of blind and visually impaired people. I want to know where these statistics come from and how, how factual are they? I know a lot of blind people who could be employed if they were willing to move, but they don't want to leave where they're comfortable. And I wouldn't call that one of those statistics. I know a lot of blind people who go through school and rehab pays for them and then they just decide to sit at home. So I don't know where those statistics come from, but now I want to jump to the bigger issue. The bigger issue for me is <clears throat> I found out about a job I wanted at, during my internship for undergrad. I went to grad school to get the job. I did my three years as a rehab teacher. I got my dream job. When I entered the field of VA blind rehab, our director was blind. Many of our consultants were blind. Many of our um, directors of blind rehab centers were blind. And many of the people in my area, visual impairment service team, were blind. Today, outside of a blind center, outside of a rehab teacher or a computer instructor, it's very difficult to find in that one area of the government any blind employees due to software issues. They've upgraded their patient software from inaccessibility to further inaccessibility. <laughs> that falls under 508. I've heard this all throughout the government, who should be the number one employer. It's Absolutely. an access issue to technology that is not fixable. I filed a 508 complaint. Our 508 office sent it to EEO. It bounced back and forth. I eventually had an on-the-job injury. It wouldn't put Dragon on my computer. It ended my career. I've been on work comp for 15 years. How does that help my agency? So I was glad to hear Peter say, don't talk about the technical people. But when they, when they deploy software that they know is in violation of 508, and, um, that's a real serious issue. And we've gone from a huge employment of blind and visually impaired veterans and blind veterans in blind rehab services for the VA to virtually none outside of a blind rehab center. We got a crisis on our hands that begins with the federal government. Thank May you, I respond briefly to that 70% uh, figure? 
Um, I, I think Lori wants to respond as well. So please, briefly, Lori, please. Go, ahead, go, go for it. Yes, there. Um, the figure that you cited of 70% Margie originated from some incorrect data from 1985 published by Corinne Kirshner. Mm -hmm. um, it since has been updated and found that the unemployment rate is just around 10%, give or take, depending on what year it is. The percentage of blind people who are employed is about 44%, and the remainder are considered not seeking employment. Thank you. And that's that individual. Right and you can find the data on that from Mississippi State University. Thank you. And Barbara, if you, did, if you did nothing else, Barbara, but throughout that, never use that 70% figure and say it's it's, <laughs> it's fake information or whatever term you want to use and use the figures that Lori just gave, you'd be mm -hmm. doing us a great service. Absolutely. I'd be, I'd be absolutely okay. serious. I mean, if you did okay. nothing else but that, that would be awesome. So get rid of the 70%. And so how many people does that 10% represent, do you think? Oh, I'm I'm not sure, because um, actually that research was completed in 2018. There is some other research that I haven't finished looking through that's more recent than that. Um, the other big issue we're going to run into is that when they re recollect this data, they've changed the definition of disability for the American Community Survey. So and that's going to yeah. do us a disservice. Um, so and then, yeah, you know, and there's the ever present, you know, I have services, you know, I have cross disabilities or, you know, I need medication, you know, and I if I take a certain level of employment, I will lose certain benefits, but I will not be able to sustain life as I know it because, you know, medications and things and support services that are needed are too expensive. And so it's a catch 22 as well. I think that there is a, a, a piece of the population that doesn't want to work. They're, they're good where they are and God bless. There's a piece yeah. that wants to work, but is stuck and can't really break that cycle. And then, of course, you know, all of the other issues that that we face, you know, can this individual do this job? Um, I can't imagine it because I couldn't imagine doing it without sight myself. Um, let me ask Sheila, how many hands? Uh, Barbara has graciously agreed to stay even if we, after we go off air. How many hands do we have currently? Four. Four. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's take the next one. And you have 10 minutes for the top yes. of the hour. So thank you. Um, Lynn. Hello, I'm not on the Employment Committee, but I did do a doctoral dissertation on workplace experiences of blind college-educated women, and what everybody has said is quite true. A lot of the problem is that people don't know blind people, rehab has not done a good job, really uh, con uh, working with employers, rehab has gone from rehab counselors to job developers, and uh, the 11 uh, people who I interviewed, women that I interviewed, um, really told me stories, and a lot of it is also rehab uh, agencies do not understand the psychological issues that people um, en encounter when they're trying to look for work. And um, I interviewed people from 31 to 66 years old, and I can tell you that there are there that we should uh, try to work with employers. 
but it's a difficult in because human resource managers really don't want to change their policies. They don't really want to uh, understand about diversity. They don't need to understand that the disability is a diversity issue. And so there are a lot of issues that start with the problems with rehabilitation uh, general. Great points, Lynn. Barbara, mm -hmm. um, anything you want to respond to from Peter and Lori and Lynn so far? I just wanted to ask, so my mind is reeling with the 70% number is wrong. And so I will correct that. But I guess if I'm, so I've got this goal about 80,000, you know, jobs within the sighted community. I mean, so I don't even know what the top number I'm looking at is if there are 10% and 10% is a terrible employment rates, double, more than double what well, don't worry about the don't worry about the statistics because um, Lori is exactly right. The seventy percent is bogus, and it doesn't didn't really work for my study either. So, so, okay. so what, what I would so say, what's, what's the number I'm looking at? What's what what is a good number of people that should be placed? I mean, is it a, is it how big is that? Universe? It's about ten percent of what of people who are blind or low vision that are actively looking for work. Okay, and how? But how many people are there blind? Um, I I don't. Well, know we the estimate figures. about two million in in the United States. Right, um, that's a very. Yeah, I don't. Those are at looking for work. Is the question. Right, I'd really have to look at the data in the MSU information to really figure out what they're they're uh, considering. And then, of course, the other, the other question is: How can we get some of those folks who who aren't who don't want to work or who are or off the you know want a work list? encourage them to get on the list because that's 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 right. the other challenge and one yes. of the when i make these presentations which, which i do less of these days what i tell employers or I tell people is that the unemployment rate for blind people is two to three times higher than their general population that seems to work well that's a better way to yeah i would very wholeheartedly agree with that um i think barbara it's gonna it's gonna be hard to put like an 80,000 20,000 15,000 yeah. number to it and i understand okay. you know i understand the goal you kind of you know you work with numbers because the presentation is going to be speaking about you know finances and and how will it benefit cost benefit analysis but i i think to go by a percentage so if if it's 2 to 3% higher in in the blind and low vision community then let's say we'd like to bring that down by you know a a half a percentage by a year end and by you know the full percentage in a three year space. And I'm just throwing this out at random. I don't mean this to be the actual numbers, but I think looking maybe at it in percentages and and highlighting. I just this kind of came while Lori and and um, Lynn were speaking, highlighting what organizations like ours, APH, what they're doing in in your outreach. Um, we are trying to tackle it from within, but we've we've hit that wall of where we, you know where we're effective, and now where we're just chasing the dog tail. We need the sighted buy-in now. Um, that's just one perspective. Let's take one more hand, and then we will uh, close out. Sheila, Lorna, hi, hi Lorna, welcome. Hello, thank you so much. I just want to say thank you so much, Barbara, for your books. Um, I happened to hear about the movie some time ago and a friend of mine mentioned it to me and she suggested that she thought that would be something I would enjoy watching. And I ended up, um, thank you, Anthony, for mentioning 
the fact that you're going to have Barbara on the show. I ended up reading both books in a matter of a couple of weeks, and I really enjoyed the the characters and the way that you've sketched them out. I, I truly appreciate you bringing forward a positive and more realistic um, person who is blind. Um, unfortunately, a lot of characters, you know, in, in general, in general terms, we don't get to see that. But in regards to employment, I want to also say thank you to all of you who have been speaking in regards to a lot of the barriers that we face as blind people looking for employment. Um, I am currently employed, however, um, when looking for a job, when I have faced some barriers myself, and I know others who have as well. And sadly, you can write a wonderful cover letter, present a resume that shows that you are qualified. However, when an employer learns that you are visually impaired or blind, all of a sudden that qualification disappears. And the fear of the fact that you are blind, the fear that you may not be able to do the job, even if you have the degree, you have the qualification, you have the experience, all of a sudden, all of that disappears in that person's mind. So when we are thinking about reaching out to HR, I, I, I want to, I don't know who said this, but not only HR, but also those at decision-making levels in, in, in the C-suite, they too need to come to an understanding that blindness is not the worst part of it for us. We are capable. We have the capacity when we are applying for a position. It's the attitudes and people's fear of what they think that blindness portends. You know, this person is blind and for some reason they think that you, you don't have the capacity the capability to perform a particular task, or they're afraid that, oh, well, this person is going to be a drain on my staff because they're going to need more help. And instead of asking us the questions, what will you need in order to perform your task? They come in with suppositions and a lot of their suppositions are very outdated or if yeah. outdated are, are very flawed. Hmm. So well said, Lorna, yeah. so well said. Uh, full disclosure, Lorna and I met in guide dog school. Yes, um, we did. She, she has my bo my Bodhi sister. <laughs> my brother from another mother. <laughs> and it's the truth, girl. And it's the truth. I am so glad you're here. So we're going to take a pause. We're going to finish up with the questions after we go off air. And I am going to put Barbara on the spot for a moment. Our current executive director and immediate past president, sort of, wife is um, one of our fundraising gurus. And we hold a holiday auction and a summer auction that coincides with our convention. Um, and you were talking about having um, an auction about naming a character in one of your books. Would you consider doing it again for the American Council of the Blind auction this summer? Oh, 100%. A hundred thousand percent. You bet you got it. We'll hook that up. <laughs> Leslie, if you're listening, great. If not, I know Sheila will give a call at some point in the near future and let her know that we're gonna we're gonna have that as well. Um, I just want to remind folks, um, the last Wednesday of the month is the be uh the, <laughs> a night at the opera, and Thursday is the next behind the music. 
Um, I have a really great show next week. I'll tease it uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, but um, look out for that because we have another really great show coming. Um, thank you so much, Barbara. Barbara, give your socials and contacts real quick before we go off air. Thank you. Sure. Um, website is www.barbarahinsky.com. Email is bhinsky at gmail.com. I'm on Facebook under B Hinsky. That's H I N S K E. Instagram, Barbara Hinsky author. And I, th those are the main places to find me. And of course, I'm on my books are all on Amazon and they're in Audible and I, they're in the National Library and all the places where the fourth Emily is, I don't think is, well, it hasn't been recorded yet. Now that I'm thinking about that, because the actors strike messed up everything. And so it's, it's in the queue. Yeah. It just hasn't gotten to yet. And you're going to be back uh, a couple of times this year to, to wrap with us, right? I would love that. I've learned so much about this. Um, need some more information on where would, once we convince these employers that they should be looking to blind people, how are they going to find them? I mean, are blind people, visually impaired people applying for all these jobs? I from what I understand, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. And and the Employment Committee has been putting out listings and things, but I think behind the scenes, um, I will definitely make sure you, Peter, Lori, um, are all in contact. Thank you so much, everybody out there listening in ACB Media Land or in Podcast World. You can always send comments, and I can forward them to anyone that you've heard today to Sunday Edition AC, all one word. Sunday edition AC at gmail.com. And we'll be back next Sunday with another great show. You've been listening to Sunday edition on ACB media stream one. That's American council of the blind media or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Episodes drop every week at 1 PM on Sundays. And you can email us at Sunday edition, AC, all one word, Sunday edition with the letters AC at gmail.com. Let's brunch again together next Sunday.